You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to the show. Stuart Goldsmith here with The Comedian's Comedian, bringing you the inside scoop by scooping inside the minds of all of your favourite comedians and finding out their creative processes, their drives, their desires, what makes them tick, and crucially, whether or not they're happy. Today, we're going to be hearing from Elf Lions. Now, this interview was recorded during the Edinburgh Festival this year at the Place Hotel, thanks to the Place Hotel on York Place in Edinburgh for your uh, kind offer of rehearsal space. But uh, since this episode was recorded. Elf uh, is currently out of action. I'm going to read a a statement from Elf, um, which will tell us exactly what's going on. A mixture of cordo equina and degenerative disc disease caused her to cancel a few gigs, which has annoyed her. After suffering a health scare post-Medusa, that's a show of hers, where she lost all feeling in her genitals and mobility in her lower half, she is currently repairing at home after time in hospital before going back to hospital to fix her spine and thus protect her legs and her genitals, which she loves so dearly. So we wish her all the best. I'm using the royal we there. I, and I'm sure everyone else involved with the podcast and listening to it, wish Elf all the best. She's a phenomenal, a phenomenally accomplished comedian. She's a brilliant comic. She's a very funny clown. Her stuff is part of, I suppose, the new wave of clowning, which is... I don't even know if clowning is the right title for what she does, but it's kind of devised, very creative, written pieces, singing. She throws everything at it. Uh, her show at the Edinburgh Festival two years ago was called Swan Lake. No, it wasn't. It was called Chiff Chaff, in which she attempted to do a one-woman Swan Lake in French without speaking French or being able to do ballet. So it's that kind of territory, right? She is one of the absolute best at stuff like this. And as you will hear is enormously kind of uh, academically rigorous and structurally innovative, as well as being very, very funny. So terribly uh, sad and distressed to hear about uh, Elf's current medical predicament. Um, I'm not sure the the extent to which what she's suffering from can be recovered from, but uh, all of our love to Elf, and um, uh, I hope that uh, anything that can happen to her that is positive does. And while I remember, if you are signed up to the Insiders Club at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, not only can you get extra content from loads of episodes and all future episodes with extra bits, you can also get hold of the QI Elves pod smash uh, when the uh, the No Such Thing as a Fish podcast performers and creators, all four of them, uh, came onto the Comedians Comedian Live at the King's Place Podcast Festival in London. That is released early and available now to people who've signed up to the Insiders Club. So all of that said, um, big love to Elf. This 
is Elf Lions. So let's just talk about how you safeguard your mental health during the festival. That's the sort of thing we'd normally get to around minute 40. But let's open with it, seeing as we've started talking about it naturally. Straight into it. This is your this is your eleventh fringe. Yeah. So talk me through the last eleventh fringe. I don't want there to be too heavy a fringe emphasis on this because it might not go out for a few months. But just we're here. So yeah. talk to me about the the how this is your eleventh. I have no idea this was your eleventh fringe. Well, they're not all doing stand-up shows, so because I was all into. Uh, a catchphrase my dad was always telling me about, you want to be like the captain of the ship, someone who knows but who no longer handles the ropes. So if you want to be good at what you want to do, you've got to understand all the elements of it. So I first came up when I was 17, 18, I can't remember the exact age, and I came up and I was working as a volunteer at the Forest Fringe yes, and the Forest Cafe. So I was sort of making, you know coffees and setting up then you know weird experimental theatre practices and trying to rally audiences for free fringe shows and making sure the tech didn't go wrong then I was running the bar and just doing lots of you know really interactive cleaning the venue before it started and so it was a pretty intense time just working non-stop obviously for free with a view to using this as your dad had described to understand the situation like with with a clear plan to i'm going to be super involved in this so i'm going to start at the bottom i think you need to have an you just need to have an understanding and a respect for it because i can't stand it when people don't have you know respect for technicians or stage management or bar staff or everyone who manages and makes a venue exist so it was good knowledge for me to also take into account that you have a 10 minute changeover and you know the technical difficulties. Absolutely, I understand where you're coming from. What I'm trying to what I'm trying to get at is whether you were there thinking I'm going to be a big part of this. This the, the fringe is going to be a big part of my life. I'll start gently and understand it, or whether you were just there for fun and that decision to really get into I, it came later. I had no because I didn't know the fringe existed until I was about seventeen, and then I just went up there for the first time volunteering. So I had no idea. It gotcha. was a, it was complete initiation, baptism by fire. It was sort of a bit like a sexual awakening and an emotional awakening. It was just an awakening. It was such an awakening. It was, I went insane. And, uh, and then I came back and, and I, did, I worked as a technician at the Guild of Balloon for a bit. Um, and I teched Jess Foster Q show. And then I did, you know, terrible improv shows with my university. And then I directed an opera and I did opera stuff at like the palace and surgeons you know all the different venues so the space palace sea venue you know i've been in all of them right i've been with them all <laughs> and then and then i started doing like double handers uh when i started to go actually i definitely want to do comedy because i thought maybe i'd want to be a director or a writer and i wasn't entirely sure so i thought it's because it my you know you don't need to pick your career immediately at a young age. You can have multiple different careers. And nowadays, everyone has to be a slash. It seems you can't just be a writer. You have to be a writer slash project manager slash... Yeah, the, the, or not even slash. They have to be all one word, like the German. Like, I'm a writer, producer, director, performer, yeah. actor, manager. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> With the hyphen. So, God, it probably sounds really boring, but I just, just worked. Just really focused on trying to be really good at it all. And then, and I was really bad at so much. I realised I can't. I'm an awful prop maker. I'm so bad at costumes. I'm a good lighting designer. I can do sound, but oh my god, anything to do with production 
as in producing, I can't do. But that's a valuable piece of knowledge oh. to know that there are things you're not good at. You're like, yeah. let's not waste my time doing this in the team because I'll screw it up. I think that was let's one get... of my best learning lessons was I lost, I think I was in charge of props for a show at university and I lost all of them. Like, how, how is that possible? And the lady, Pam Tate, who was in charge of props in the costume department, went, you are never allowed to borrow a prop from the costume department ever again. I said, OK. And, and who were you? Given that you are quite young, you're in your 20s, and you are... Um, I, th- I think the first time I ever heard your name, I think, was probably Isabel from Comedy for Kids, yeah. saying, oh, Elf's great. You know, and I was like, oh, Elf? Who's called Elf? <laughs> um, and I think at the time, I wasn't sure whether she meant you were one of the kids in Comedy for Kids yeah. doing stand-up. <laughs> Or with, like, did you did you ever do that? Am I completely wrong in that? You would you did comedy for kids as a gig, rather as a gig, than, not as a child. You weren't as a child. Fine, okay. Well, I you, don't you know how old, so I thought you yeah. might be a child. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how long she's been running it for, but well, I'm pretty sure. it's, I think we're at the stage now that there are certainly people who could be performing here professionally. Who were who children? Who were when children in comedy oh, for kids? Wow. But that's a non-starter in this case because you're clearly not. I'm a woman. <laughs> I'm a woman. <laughs> Comedy for women. It's a very different slide. Yeah. Oh, God. Comedy Club for Kids is the, still the gig that makes me the most nervous. Why? Because it's so much... Everyone's so much more brutally honest. And you've got two layers. You've got children and you've got adults. And you've got all these these things that you can't do. So you've got these rules that you can't swear. You can't be overly sexual. You can't... Improvising, you can obviously do, but... I mean, I'm quite an aggressive performer, so I have to re- rewrite my persona when I come on stage. And at the same time, you can't be too playful and innocent because then the children think you're talking down to them. Yeah, so there's that's this true. constant yeah. balance. And I, I love kids, but I also think like I'm a really uncool aunt. Like yes. I just come across as being, I'm not cool to children at all. I'm just a really weird, long person. So. I, for the benefit of the uh, the listener who uh, is not familiar with the visuals of uh, Elf and uh, and has not troubled themselves to look at the photo which will accompany this episode, when you arrived today, I've, I've been this morning reading to toddlers, my own and other people's, in our uh, festival flat, and you you looked like a Quentin Blake drawing of a cool aunt. <laughs> <laughs> I think to just visualise that that's what you that's what you look and dress like. I'm just incredibly long. Oh, like, the amount of times people come up to me and randomly say, excuse me, have you got Marfan syndrome? Out of nowhere, Marfan syndrome, which I think is something to do when you're incredibly long. Okay. And it's something to do with heart disease. But do I don't you, know. Have you ever I looked don't, into I, it? I, I, don't, I don't believe I've got Marfan syndrome. But people, I clearly have enough of an odd shape about me that people mm. feel the need to come up to me and just double check. If, if, if I've been to a doctor. Do you think your... <laughs> I'm going to say your length. Um, do you think... Do you, to use your term, your, your, uh, your longness, your length, do you think it is part of why you are a performer? Probably. I mean, I was always long. I was just this long, sloping, gangly child. And every time at primary school, my parents were constantly being contacted, asked if they'd fed me... Um, and they had. I, all I did was eat. You did a show that I saw last year called Swan Lake. You were an ungainly long child. <laughs> and we speculated as to whether your length as a human being, uh, your physical uh, height, uh, might be something to do with your, uh, 
your journey into performance. Yeah. We might get back into a little bit of that later on. Um, but you did this show, Swan Lake, in which you deliberately bit off more than you could chew and attempted to do the whole of Swan Lake in an hour yeah. in a parrot costume. It made my wife cry with laughing, and I gushed to you and to the listener about what a wonderful thing that is. That's one of your one of five or six performers that have ever done that, and I'm always inordinately impressed. I loved it as well, but for me, that's a real badge of honor. Because I think you came on like the fifth or sixth. You came very early. Very early in the run. And the show changed so much. I think I only finished the show really in Australia because you. The day you came, I remember it was the day I first decided to use the fairy lights. Because every day my challenge was I'd bring in a new prop and just try and see if I can incorporate something new. Okay. Um, and that was the day I did in the fairy lights, which became a real hit for the rest of the show. And then for that's the bra striptease when I take all the bras yes. out and then they get more and more convoluted and ridiculous. Um, and then I, I'm really glad you enjoyed it. The aim was I wanted to have fun. That was all I wanted. You to do. were shining with fun. You had, the, you had that quality that Spencer Jones has. When you yeah. walk out on stage, you see his eyes and you go, this person is absolutely having the time of their lives. Yeah. And then you as an audience go, I'm in. Yeah, that's it. If you can't have fun with it, it's what I've been really struggling with recently with this show, Chiff Chaff, that I've been building. Because I haven't had really, haven't had any time to make it. Because my way of working, and that might sound pretentious, is, you know, you go to like a 10 minute, you do a 10 minute spot or a 20 minute spot, you do, and you just, fuck, you just muck about and you fail. You can say fuck about. Uh, can I? Okay, you can fuck about. Oh God, I feel so rude. Um, <laughs> and you can make as many mistakes as possible and you can be shit and da-da-da. And you take away from it and you remember what you enjoyed and you build the show from that. It's almost... Yeah, it's just... You're just fleshing it out because I, I can't think in five-minute sets, ten-minute sets, 20-minute sets. That's too constrictive for me and I don't enjoy that. I find it too prescription-y. Uh, but with because I was I've been doing Swan up until May, and then suddenly having two months to not just make, it's coming up with a fully formed concept album basically. Yes, uh, I've been really struggling, and it's only in the last two days because when you came to see the show, I um, I just thought right, I'm just going to improvise it, and I don't really care. I just don't. I know it's. I feel like it's going to be a really good show eventually. I think it's going to be a beautiful show eventually, but right now, I still don't know what it is. And so it's changed a lot since you've last seen it, because I've added in new sound effects, I've taken out the prisoner's dilemma, mm-hmm. I now have uh, water coming out of me after I give birth to Earth. There are loads of new bits that I've added in. Um, it's just been a really... I've only started to enjoy myself now on stage again with the show. And yesterday was the first time I went on stage. I went, I don't think about how long I've got left on stage. I'm in this. Yes, yes. Okay, well, let's, let's talk about vulnerability. How vulnerable... Do we, we talked a little bit in the, in the Lost Tapes about... Um, the Lost Tapes. About um, <laughs> vulnerability and the difference between... Who was... You said Chris someone. Chris to- Krauss. Um, they wrote a book called I Love Dick, which is beautiful and is not as smutty as you would think from the title. Really fascinating book, uh, sort of reinvents, in my opinion, like the way a novel is written. Uh, but there's a bit in it they write about sincerity and being genuine, and how men are often seen as being, and I will quote this in, in, 
incorrectly, but men, she says, are deemed more often as being genuine and sincere because they can say, wow, I thought that was fantastic and wow, I'm being really honest and listen to the way I'm talking to you about one real thing and I'm really saying it to you, eye contact intense. While women are more seen as being hysterical, which in some respects could be seen as being more honest because honesty is being conflicting in your emotions and jumping from being angry to sad to aroused to everything and that vibrancy and that fire can be overwhelming to people and it's hard to realise that that is actual truth. Yes, so, whereas men have kind of like shut all of that down mm-hmm. and gone, I am performing sincerity and that is actual sincerity. Yeah. And we were mentioning it in the Lost Tapes before Stuart fucked up. Um, joking. Uh, about, yeah, only recently feeling like I learnt how to be a human because for such a long time you're performing what it means to be vulnerable. Going, oh God, I, I can't believe I said that. I'm such a fool. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's lovely that you slip into the voice of the ingenue that, that you're currently performing in Chiff Chaff. That's a really, I, I must confess to some disappointment when I came and you didn't begin in the French accent that you did the whole of Swan Lake with. I just, I just loved it so much. I love the French accent. It's the only way I can make my sister laugh. Okay. Is, is the French voice, because it's exactly how I am when I'm at home. And my family and I, we went to go and see a ballet and my sister was really cross at me. She wasn't talking to me about something. Because she thinks I'm... Because uh, I'm like the big sister and I want to be protective of her. And I'm like, are you eating enough? Make sure you get sleep. And she's like, fuck off. So we go to see the show. And I went, right, OK, you've got to remember, it's just a play. OK? It's not real. They're ballet dancers. OK, OK? And I just talked to her the whole time. And she was like, don't talk like that. And really loud in the Royal Opera House. And I got, OK, ruler, bend the ruler, fuck. Don't panic, it's pretend. Nobody really gonna die. And she just starts giggling, and it's such a delicious feeling. So I've learned that is my. <laughs> it's such a lovely thing. And we saw a flash of it at the end of Chiff Chaff, that moment I spoke to you about when I saw you in the, the camp yesterday. Yeah. When someone was on their phone at the end of the show, and you dealt with them in the most disarmingly playful, funny way, when there was literally one minute of the show left, and you would have been justified in kicking the phone out of her hand. And just said, like, you kind of... It was interesting because you, you started as you sort of stepping out of character or stepping out of the show and saying, um, are you really on your phone? And there was this tension in the audience like, oh, she's unhappy, she's really unhappy and cross and this person's done a bad thing and yeah. that reflects badly on us and, oh, God, there's not much left and the tension's dangerous. And then you just kind of slip very naturally into that voice and you finished by saying to her, okay, cheeky, cheeky, say sorry. And then she went, sorry, and you went, okay. And you moved on and the moment was completely broken. But that thing of going cheeky, cheeky, cheeky. Was, was completely that voice. Well, it's nice to give someone the benefit of the doubt because also nowadays people are so used to being on their phones. I think yeah, our true. viewpoint of what it means to be polite has changed. And there are lots of reasons why you check your phone at the end of a show she might be panicking about. There are lots of reasons why you never know the context. Of course. But it's just... And I don't want to step on and be too aggressive. Because, again, it's not just souring her experience, it's souring the whole rooms. So you're, you have to... It's, you're making an example. You have, she came up to me and apologised. She went, I'm really sorry. And I said, yeah, but I have to make an example of you because you're being rude, you're being naughty, and the rest of the class needs to learn that that's not OK. And that's why I always say... Because there was a guy on his phone in Australia... This really good-looking guy sat on the front row, and he was, you know, like your typical good-looking man. He had this beautiful woman sitting next to him, and it turned out they were hot, the whole family, the wife, the mother-in-law, the, they all come to see the show, and he was on his phone, and I just... And I was dressed up as Von Rothbart 
from Swan Lake. So I've got these giant pool noodles between my legs and my arms. And I'm standing there in a parrot costume with my knickers out. And I looked at him and I was like, what are you doing? And I started hitting him with the woggles. And I said, is this your wife? And he was like, yes. And I was like, you're sitting next to this beautiful woman watching this amazing show by this amazing performer and you're on your phone and one day you're going to be dead? Who are you texting? Who are you even texting? Come on, there's no moment other than now. You've got to apologise. You aren't living in the life you want to live. You must be unhappy. You need to put that phone down. You need to go hiking. And I just looked, and I was just like, and I said, you've got to apologise. Apologise to your wife. And he was like, I'm sorry. Apologise to your mother-in-law. And I made him apologise to everyone in the room and then the next day I bumped into the mother-in-law and she went I was so glad that you apologised you made him apologise because you know what we just don't think he appreciates her (laughs) (laughs) and then they're like and to be honest she kind of wants to leave him because she thinks he's never present Oh my god! But it was, but it was in a kind. I think you have to handle it in a very kind. You, yes, you've got to treat them like children because they're big children. That well, that is to me. It speaks of a kind of a confidence in you of your position, your relationship to us. When you say you've got to treat them like children, that suggests such a kind of an authority, like a silly, a really deliciously silly, but nonetheless real authority on your part. Well. It, the audience are a really rare bird. They're very vulnerable. You don't, you're only going to get that group of people once, and their emotional stability, you know, their emotional environment. That's only existing that one time. You have no idea what they're like when they come into the room. So you've got to be very gentle. I think that's my opinion with an audience. And if I'm preparing for a show, it's a bit like you revise for an exam. And this might sound a bit shows sort of the focus on academia that we had as children but you revise for the exam you revise as much as you can but at the end of the day you don't know what question you're going to get but you answer the question that you're given you don't answer the question you want to answer you don't just write everything you know about Iago from Othello you write about what they give you and so when I come on and I look at the audience I think what have I been given who are you what because last night I looked at the audience for so the night I think you came to see Chiftaff, it was quite a young audience and I, I would I made, based on the assumptions of looking at the audience I thought okay I'm not sure many of you are necessarily economic theorists you, you might be a bit you might be up for something a bit rude I mean I'm making generalisations but you sort of work out what they laugh at and what they giggle at and last night the audience was pretty much everyone's granddad yeah and they were a lot older, and they'd clearly come because they'd seen Mervyn Stutter's Pick of the Fringe. The yeah, oh, it's, the, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the kiss of Stutter. Yeah, and they you were do all... that brilliant showcase, and then the next night, it's all silver tops. It's all silver tops, <laughs> and they were all very lovely silver tops. Everyone's in Bowdoin, and they were all like, look at this young lady doing something brave. Wow, look at her. She's coming out on stage, and she's doing a show about the economy. It's at 6.50. We'll have dinner afterward. How wonderful. And I came out on stage, and I give these two men sex dolls, and I go, right, I need you to blow this up. And I had to start a bit more authoritative and make sure that they know I know what I'm doing. Yes. And then get them on board with going, now we can all be really silly. Yes. And uh, you sort of, it's a bit, it's a bit, it's a bit like having sex. You know the first time you have sex with someone and you're a bit like, right, okay, what does this work? Does this work? Are you, do you like that? Uh, no. And then you get into the thrill of it. 
It's a bit like the beginning. It's the foreplay going, ooh, do you like that? Oh, no. Okay. Okay. This is how you like it. Okay. Full steam. But you don't want to do it too quick. You've got to, like, take it. And that's probably a terrible way of describing it. But No, I think it's the only way of describing it. I think it's, it, it, it's so, it's such, I'm forever saying this on the show, it's a sensual art. Someone told me that about acting and I've nicked it and adopted it. It is, comedy is a sensual art. That's one of the reasons why reviewers don't work. Because why, why reviews, it doesn't make any sense. Because if you're having sex with someone and they're reviewing you, <laughs> they're making notes, then it's they're making not the it, thing. Yeah, I would say, yeah. put your notepad down. <laughs> put your notepad down, let's fuck. Yeah, it was, That's what <laughs> well, there was a reviewer last year, I gave her a prop for Swan, she went, I'm really sorry I'm reviewing. And I was like, well, how can you review the show if you're not a part of it? Yeah. I said, yeah. put your notepad down and just have this and all I need you to do is blow bubbles. I mean, people are going to love you, people are going to hate you, it doesn't matter. Exactly. It really doesn't matter. I think the best compliment I got was when I got called an old deal by the Times. Oh, God, that was so funny. You taking ownership of that at the beginning of the show was... Mwah. An ordeal is such... You know what's funny about that is I couldn't read that review because it's behind a paywall. <laughs> <laughs> so I've never read what <laughs> Dominic Maxwell really thinks of me. <laughs> but I think that's... I think it's the sign of a good show when you can have lovely... When you have all these different reactions. Because yeah. if you have an audience just sit there going, uh-huh, 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 I understand this, uh-huh, uh-huh. It doesn't... It's not... It's not stimulating. It's just missionary. So this is Elf. As you can hear, what a joy to talk to her. Uh, Jake Crossland, who kindly logged this episode for me, uh, sent an email back going, I've got nothing to... We, we, I normally ask my loggers to embolden things of particular interest. Uh, and he said, I couldn't put any of this in bold because I loved all of it. And, uh, and I'm the same. You can hear how much I'm enjoying chatting to Elf. Such uh, an intellect combined with such a kind of an extraordinary sort of creative, sensual approach to clowning. Just uh, and, and I mean that in the sense of uh, when, when intellect is married with, when comic intellect is married with a kind of a really visceral comic sensibility for what's funny that really gets my uh that really gets my thing happening <laughs> so I, I urge you to go and see elf in whatever form you can and this um uh, cordo queener that she's suffering from I, I really I, I don't know anything about it at all apart from what she's very briefly told me it sounds like it could have uh, a long-term effect on her work so i reiterate big love to elf and um i, I really hope that uh, she is able to continue making the work that she's so brilliant at making We'll get back into this interview in just a second. A couple of messages. Um, first, we had a message on the Facebook group, which has been really good fun recently. It remains an extremely pleasant and friendly corner of the internet and is full of people who listen to this podcast, kindred spirits, other people who are excited about um, uh, nerdy comedy things. I, I keep saying that. I keep referring to the listenership as kind of comedy nerds or mega nerds. I don't mean anything negative by that. I, I consider myself a comedy nerd, just someone who is really excited about the the precepts of this show. So forgive me. T let me know if me calling you all comedy nerds frustrates you. <laughs> because um, there's got to be a better term for that. I'm, you know, there's com comrades and com companions and so forth. That's all doable. Feels a little bit done. Um, but uh, uh, anyway... The point being, uh, in the Facebook group, there are lots of really interesting conversations happening at the moment about mid-career pivots uh, with reference to James Acaster and how he appears to have gone even deeper and got even better uh, by making his work more personal. I believe his West End show, Cold Lasagna, Hate Myself 1999, is still uh, happening uh, in the West End. So do go along and see that. Um, and uh, another thing, oh, so this is the whole reason I mentioned this, in the Facebook group, I got a message from someone 
saying quite a few of the comics on the Philly scene, I assume that means Philadelphia in a cool American way, um, uh, she got into the podcast because quite a few of the comics on the Philly scene listened to them. That's nice. And hello to you and hello to all comics on the Philly scene. Get in touch. Get, get in touch if you're, if you're enjoying this podcast and you feel that it features in whatever scene that you're in outside of the UK. I know lots of UK listeners uh, enjoy it. Um, but if you are part of a comedy scene somewhere and you think, oh, this podcast is getting handed around, I'd love to know. How exciting. So um, uh, thanks to, to her and all scene members. Um, uh, what else was I going to mention? Oh, yes, Brett. Brett Goldstein's podcast, Films to be Buried With. Uh, I'm on episode 17, the current episode, and uh, it's, oh, God, so much fun. If you like the things I like, specifically time loop movies, heists and Moana, you're really going to enjoy that. I had such a fun conversation with Brett, and I think his podcast is excellent. It's It's one of those ones that's so good, and he's so great, that I don't mind advertising it to you despite feeling a bit threatened by it because it's so good. See what I mean? What's the word? The Germans have probably got a word for that. There's something about Brett, who's a a fabulous comedian and film star, who's too afraid to come on this podcast because, uh, well, listen to the episode and you'll find out exactly why he's too scared to come on ComCom. But he is a a ComCompletist. He's listened to every one of these. So for that reason alone, we should definitely give his show a try. And also because his voice contains a sort of inherent smile, which is... um, you just can't... I can't listen to Brett's voice without breaking into a grin. I say you can do that for an entire hour about heist and time loop uh, by finding films to be buried with. Um, I was going to say something else. So the Facebook group... Yes, there's some, there's some Frank Skinner work in progress dates mentioned in the Facebook group, but that's um, that's probably sold out by now. Sozers. Um, so, oh, God, who says Sozers? You know when you say something ironically for long enough that you just say it? That's oh, terrible, isn't it? And thank you to a listener called David who emailed me. Um, it simply said, it, the subject line was Future Girl, and the whole text was, mine is six, mate. Welcome to the jungle. Thanks, David, and thanks everyone that's been getting in touch with lovely messages, positive messages, um, about my beautiful daughter. It was very exciting. In the Facebook group, I posted a picture of me and her about two days old, and uh, it received an overwhelming amount of um, social media engagement. Um which is, uh, you know, normally the Facebook group is like people jump on stuff and get excited. But this was like, oh, wow. I mean, that's the only picture you're ever going to get of her. So uh, please enjoy that. Join up the Facebook group by searching for it on, you know, that platform. So that is, that's all of the, the gubbins. My tour is still on sale. I've added a few dates. Uh, Cheltenham is now on sale. Salisbury's on sale. Um, mostly places in the southwest, south and west of England at the moment, Crawley, and uh, I don't have them in front of me, but, you know, the usual places I go to, plus some new ones. Falmouth. Who goes to Falmouth? I'm going to find out. So you can find all of that stuff on the tour at comedianscomedian.com slash tour. And do, uh, you know, the shows tend to sell well. They're small venues and they sell a a modest, decent amount of uh, tickets. Um, But what's good about getting in early is that should it suddenly go nuts, you're safe. And also it lets me relax and go, oh, good, I'm going to Falmouth and some people are going to be there. So um, if you fancy that, even though it's not for months, get it in the diary now. I took my son to a, an amazing eye-popping and ear-exploding show called uh, Lo-Fi, Lo-Fi Funky Space Quest. And um, that was at the Wardrobe Theatre in Bristol. I had loads of fun seeing that. And that was only because I had seen a flyer months earlier, booked it in and went, right, I'm seeing it on that day. And it all worked out. Having a child is definitely forcing me to live in a much more organised way. More on that, perhaps, in the post or maybe we'll make it less wanging on about your kid-based. That's everything for now. I think, I feel like there's something else to tell you about, but there we are. We'll discuss it later after the conclusion of this conversation with Elf Lions. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The show last night with the, the silver tops in Bowdoin, yeah. I wanted to uh, uh, pick on a particular thing you said, which is that you were talking about you need to convince them that you know what you're doing. Yeah. Now, one of the elements of you on stage, one of, the, one of the notes that you play, is a kind of chaotic note. It's a sort of, it's the illusion of not knowing what you're doing. Yeah. You're not apologising for the show, but part of, that, part of that kind of clown energy of like looking at us, letting us in and just breathing out like, oh Christ, what now? That kind of quality. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about how you transmit that you don't know what you're doing whilst also transmitting that it's okay because you know you know what you're well, doing about is, not knowing what you're doing. The truth is I don't really know what I like so all I know is right this bit I eat a banana I don't fiscal policy I like explain fiscal policy next bit I'm you see what I'd like to do is because I'm not a joke writer I don't write jokes I've never been good at writing jokes I can be I, I I feel like the words don't really matter. That's my opinion. I feel like words mean very little. It's how you say something that's funny. Um, so I give myself a challenge. I go, right, I'm going to be really sexy now. And what's the limitation? Okay. So I'm dressed in a parrot costume and I'm going to be really sexy. How am I going to be really sexy? Right, Shawn Michaels from WWF Wrestling. Right, I'm going to do it to that. Uh, okay, uh, I need to explain ballet. But that could be quite boring if you get really good at knowing what ballet is. So how do I limit that? Do it in French. Don't speak French. Okay, I'll learn French. If I can't remember French, I'll make up words. <laughs> you give yourself these sort of... And is that, is that Gaulier or is that you? I think that's, that's me. That's not necessarily... Like, you learn different exercises from Gaulier. But again, I didn't learn clown. I did straight I did all the theatre stuff mm-hmm. I was trying to learn how to be a woman I feel like at Golia I was learning okay. how to be in my shape and in my body um, and owning myself as a creature uh, so it's funny because I, I feel like I do do clown though I didn't study it with Golia I agree yes um, and I, the inherent point of clown for me is that it's child it's pure and it's joyful and it's present. You're with the audience and you're not trying to make a political point. But at the moment you're trying to make a political point, make the audience think about something, it's not clown. And also, the moment you try and force a meaning on something, the meaning halves. The audience get more meaning out of something when you just say it, when you, it's just pure. Can you... I wouldn't ask you to sort of point to that. I think that's interesting. If you try and force a meaning, the meaning halves. I wouldn't ask you to point to that in someone else's work, but are there, are there bits of work you've made in the past where you were trying to force a meaning? Yeah, I mean, when I did Pelican, which was the show I did before Swan, and I was very depressed making Pelican. I wanted to do a show about my relationship with my mum, and the truth was I wasn't ready to do a show about my relationship with my mum. My relationship with my mum is very good, but my parents are very... My upbringing, I've only on reflection, was so unlike a lot of people's upbringings, I think. Very... 
my parents live life of, uh, with an undefended heart and it, everything was very like you saw all the bruises you saw everything and me my brother and sister and I were very much we saw everything that was going on and I think it really my viewpoint of what a relationship with your mother and father is is actually very different to what a lot of people's relationship is and I was trying to make a share about that but I fully wasn't really aware of that at the same time I'd also I just experienced I had a miscarriage and I was trying to put that in the show because I was trying to make because the thing that was important to me at the time was not enough people talk about miscarriage and it's incredibly common and a lot of people have them and mine was slightly bizarre because I was actually I was on birth control at the time so mm. I shouldn't have had been able to have one anyway and it was all a bit out of nowhere and I was trying to put that in the show and and I think actually at the time I was trying to make a meaningful you know the 45 minute in you have the point show but also in a weird way because my mum's alive I don't feel like I could go full hog on my mum and I don't mean that in a disrespectful way but it's really difficult to do a very honest show about someone who's in the audience Um, and I think that was the reason I decided to do Swan because I came away from doing Pelican so sad and so broken and my partner at the time uh, John Luke Roberts he said to me when you really stay away from doing personal stuff for a while just be silly and that, and I went, right, well, I'm just going to do Swan Lake. I'm going to do Swan. And that was it. And then Swan, for me, felt like me being my most vulnerable because it was me at my most happy, being silly. And and that was why I got really... In, some I, When people said it didn't have any point to it, and I was like, that is the point, though, because to be silly is still so rebellious. And we don't allow people that opportunity enough. And I really... I got really... What was really lovely about doing Swan was the amount of women who came up to me and said it, they found it really inspiring to watch another woman be so stupid. Yeah. And I thought that was really, like, nice. Is it more of an act of rebellion to be silly, given that you're a woman? Possibly. Yeah, well, I remember doing Swan at Soho Theatre and someone came up to me and I found it so bizarre that you had your knickers out. I just couldn't believe it. The amount of men, performers that you see with the... the penises out or you know very tight shorts and the joke being you can see their genitals i've got knickers on it's not like you can see the contours of my labia you can just see that i've got knickers on and for some reason that's <laughs> yeah it is well it's yeah and it's that almost i find in the parrot costume it was that refusal to accept that i'm a sexual creature because the parrot costume is so unsexy and i'm walking around with my big legs out jumping around like a big bloody buffalo <laughs> in french so when you came to... Coming back to this idea of limitations, mm-hmm. you have an idea for a thing. Talk, talk, let's talk a little bit more about that process. In terms of making your most recent show, which you said you made under pressure, you had two months to make it in, and you... you what was the very first starting point? Is it that I want to do something about the economy? Yep. Or is it I want to do something impossible? Oh, I couldn't possibly do something about the economy. That'll do. Yeah. So I don't know any. I, I know the economy because my dad knows the economy, but I know the economy in the way I know the economy. But I couldn't debate with someone about the economy necessarily who's academic, who's good at arguing, because that's when I get flustered. I'm not very good at arguments, never have been. It's why I'm not good with hecklers. I'm better at being kind, I think. I've worked out my own way of dealing with aggression. Partly also, I think, probably from childhood, like watching people interact. I'm like, I can't get into this. Um, so I thought, right, do economics. It'll annoy my dad. <laughs> How can I do it? What am I not good at? I can't do musical comedy. I've never done it. I'd like to give it a go. I'll do musical comedy. I love doing mime. I'm not very good at mime, but I really want to do mime. I'll do mime. Put that in. 
I love drag, I love lip syncing, I love the cabaret world, I really want to incorporate that, so I'll put drag into it, I'll put cabaret, lip syncing into it, I'll interview my dad, and I, I always thought I'll put that in. And then, at the same time, I've always wanted to be good at hula hooping, I want to be more better, better with my body, because it is, I'm so dyspraxic and physically I don't really know what I'm doing with it. And I tore from Spy Monkey. He said, the funniest thing about you is how stupid you are with your body and you don't even realise it. He said, the things that you do without, like, when I'm flustered, I just walk in a circle. <laughs> These really silly things I didn't realise I do. So I put myself in this impossible scenario. So how do you teach fiscal policy with two sex stools? How do you... And what makes me happy explaining it? And for me, yeah, it made complete sense to dress up as a lion and do the Lion King. It, it might. What make, do you mean? For me, it made sense to do that. It just made complete sense for me that how do I explain the economy? Well, the economy lives in all of us. We are, we, are, we, we are the market. The market controls me. My dad is an economist, and I am little, and I would like to be an economist. But I, I'm trying to. I've got these big footsteps to fill, and people don't realise the economy is beautiful and it's really empowering. And then I naturally think of the Lion King, and then I think of it lives in you, and I was like, well, that makes sense, and I'll give birth to the earth. Anyway, like it doesn't. I think it shouldn't be difficult. Philippe would always say this at school sometimes. They go, oh, don't kick me off, Philippe. I tried really hard. And you go, well, you tried hard. You shouldn't have tried hard. It should be easy. I think yeah. when you come across a good idea, and I don't mean it should just come straight away, but there's almost that simple... It's falling in love, isn't it? It's not hard to be in a relationship. You argue, but it's easy to say sorry. It's easy to get back on track. And I think that's what a good idea is. Um, and if I have to work too hard on something, so it's why I took the prisoner's dilemma out. I realised... The joke is, I do know the prisoner's dilemma. I pretend I get confused. Yes. And the audience have to jump in and help me. But too many people think that I genuinely don't know the prisoner's dilemma. And I went, ah, oh, it's funny for me and it's funny for people who know me. But if it's not funny enough, uh, I've got to take it out. Yes. And I'm not having enough fun. So I put another mime in and I do a bit where I recreate the shining. Um, Does it, are you able to... Given that what, like you're in the thick of the festival now, we've done the first weekend, you've, um, you've identified this bit actually is repeatedly not working. With your model of working, whereby a stand-up, for example, if a stand-up were to bin five minutes of stuff, you'd need to write a pretty quick... Five, you know, that would be hard to write five minutes of everybody's stuff. Are you in a situation where you go, this is easy, it's like falling in love, I'll just have another silly idea that limits me, that challenges me, I'll think of another thing yeah. I can't do and I'll try and do that. Pretty much. So you are able to go, well, I'll fill this in with a five-minute game, which not is always, like, an it's impossible not challenge. It's obviously that simple, like because it, it has to also be relative and it can't just be, you can't just picking, be picking something surrealist for surrealist's sake because you know you watch shows and you feel that bit comes out of nowhere and it's not worth it still has to have a cohesive impact. But I took Prisoner's Dilemma out and I looked at what I already had. And I realised with the mimes, I can stretch them out. And also, basic in human interaction, interacting with the audience. And I don't like thinking about things in terms of five minutes or four minutes. It's as long as it needs to be for it to be funny. So if it's one minute and it's not working, I'll take that one minute out. If it's a one minute and it's really good, I'll keep it. I, I can't think about it in terms of time. It makes me really anxious. I, like the way, so when I teach, sometimes when I a lecture occasionally about how to make theatre work, and the way I always imagine it, I think the way anyone should make a show is you imagine 
you've been given an unlimited budget. And I say, you've got any venue you want, any sound team, you've got everyone, you've got everything you've ever wanted to do it. So I just want you to come up with that dream show and there's no limitation. So you want Elton John in it, Elton John's in it. And you make the show and you've got to think about, it's not just the script, it's the music, it's the stage lighting, pyrotechnics, it's the audience, who's the audience demographic, how are they laid out? You think about all these aspects. And then after you've planned it and you've budgeted it, I go, I'm really sorry, I got the budget wrong. (laughs) It's half a million. And then you do half a million. So you just cut it down a little bit. Maybe it's not Elton John, okay? It's Taylor Swift or whatever. Maybe not Taylor. (laughs) And like, I'm really sorry, I got that wrong. It's a thousand pounds. And then it's a thousand pounds. And you go, how do I do it with a thousand pounds? So you go, okay, I'll get someone with an Elton John mask to do it. I'll lip sync Elton John. I need them in the round. I tell, I can't do it in the opera house, so I'll tell people we're in the opera house. And you restrict it and you restrict it until I say you've got 10 quid and you've got the room you're in. How do you put this show on? And then it's that simple, it's like that thing in Shakespeare, isn't it, when you go, when Puck goes, I'm invisible, that's all you need. Yeah, Just tell yeah, the audience, yeah. I'm invisible, done. Yeah. It doesn't need to be uber-complicated. And it's again like what Stephen King says in on writing. There's this beautiful bit. Have you read it? I have. I love oh, it. Oh god, it's... I love it. I walked past it in a bookshop and I went, "Oh, it's been a good five years since I've read oh, that." Oh, it's read just that beautiful. But there's this lovely bit in it. He talks about trusting in the in the audience or the reader. And there's this bit. He says, "There is a table. On the table, there is a white tablecloth. In the centre of the table, there is a cage. In the cage, there is a white rabbit. And on the rabbit, in red, is the number nine or something like that." And then he says, I don't specify what type of table it is, whether it's an iron table or wooden table. I don't specify whether the tablecloth's made out of ivory or lace. I don't specify what type of cage it is, whether it's perspex or, you know, wood. I don't specify what type of rabbit it is, but you've done all that work already. Yeah. And because of that, it gives you a more powerful image because you pick all the rest yourself. I feel like that's a really good thing with comedy. You you don't need to give the audience everything because they'll work it They'll fill in the gaps. Does that make sense? Yeah. God, I, love sound, it. I feel like I sound like a real one. No, I it. love it. I love it. I'm, I'm getting quiet in the way that I get quiet when I'm just going, oh, I love it. <laughs> and a Stephen King analogy. What oh, the best. I think, I think um, I, I'm, I'm struck by how I, I work the opposite way around to that. Mm-hmm. And I'm fascinated by it because I think I've got nothing. What can I possibly do? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And I wonder if that's to my artistic detriment to kind of, I always love seeing shows where people massively overreach themselves. You know, when I yeah. heard, oh, Elfie's doing a musical about the economy, I was like, of course she is. You yeah. know, it's a, like a completely impossible thing. You've got to, because why wouldn't you do something impossible? Like, why wouldn't you? Like, I don't... When someone says, oh, I'm going to just do a show about my year at home, Why? Does that make you, like, get wrecked with excitement? Like, is that what is really turning Well, I suppose for me, I like the idea of making something from nothing. Yeah. I like the idea, I like the challenge of going, it's just me and a microphone and all I'm going to do is talk. Yeah. But my ideas are going to be so, uh, not clever, clever, but, like, they're going to be artfully or deftly relatable. I'm going to reveal a truth you knew but you didn't know you knew it. You know, it's it's about ideas rather than play. And I suppose what I try and do is go, here is an idea, yeah. and now I'm going to play within the idea. Yeah. 
Like that's, See, I that's couldn't what do that. Like, that's such a different way of... I feel like I've stood up for my own stuff for <laughs> no, once. No, I never do that. No, great. Because <laughs> I don't... I mean, it's just the way you each work, isn't it? It's, it's why stand-up and comedy is so beautiful, because there are all these different bits of it. Like, I couldn't do what you do. Like, I, I'm not good at... That thing doesn't excite... It doesn't... Not that it, I love watching it. Sure. But I can't... I try and think like that, and that was the problem I had with Pelican. I was trying to make a straight stand-up show, and gee, it was re- received well. People really reacted to it. There were lots of funny bits in it. It was a good show, but it wasn't... Every time I was getting into it, I wasn't going, oh, God, I can't wait to get on stage and do this bit of material yeah. in my sexy pre-comedy voice. <laughs> I was going, oh... Right, I've got to hit that beat. I've got to hit that beat. I've got to make sure that joke's in there. Otherwise, I can't do that callback. Oh, remember, if I don't mention that bit, then the theory of the show doesn't add up. For me, it was writing a boring essay. Yeah. And I think it's more exciting... I talk about it in the show, you know, when, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. I always think it's far more exciting to think, I want to make lemonade, but I've not got any lemons. How do you do it? I think that theater, that process is really fun. Does it, is, is, there, is there also, for all the sort of risk and excitement of biting off more than you can chew on purpose, is there a kind of a safety to attempting the impossible? Because if you fail, well, look, it was impossible anyway. Possibly. But at the same time, the job is to make people laugh, isn't it? Like, that is the main goal. As long as I'm hitting that, as long as the audience are laughing, I've succeeded for me. It depends on what your objective is. Like, I, I, my objective with Chiff Chaff is to show that economics is beautiful. I think I do do that. I do believe, I fully believe I make people realise that economics is beautiful. The same way I think people... I really do believe that I tell the story of Swan Lake. I do. Like, I, I do. And I think that's possibly why people think it's a clown show, because people go, you don't. It's so <laughs> stupid. But I... I will argue. No, I, I, go, do. I go, no, no, no. I, have, I don't think I could have explained Swan Lake in a more clear and inclusive way mm. than taking my knickers off at the end and covering myself in ketchup and shouting, I am woman. I, I feel like that is the only way you can explain Swan Lake. But I don't, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> do, you, do you think that you have been afforded the opportunity to take risks because you have less of a financial imperative because of class, say. Yeah. I wonder. It's an interesting... Because I was brought up... Let me think. I want to try and vocalise this in the correct way because, obviously, I'm very lucky in that my mum and dad, when I said I wanted to be a comedian when I was 16 said, OK, you become a comedian. And I said, I want to do it. And they said, well, don't go to university. Focus on being a comedian. We'll drive you to comedy gigs. If that's what you want to do, you, you do it. And you fuck. But the j- rule is, in my family, if you want to do something, you don't just half do it. You do it. Like, my sister, when she wanted to be a horse rider, and she competed professionally, and then she had an accident. Um, but, I mean, she, it was intense, and she left school, and she was homeschooled so she could be a horse rider. There was no... You know, it wasn't just like, oh, getting on your pony at the weekend. No, 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 it was, it was her whole life. And for comedy, that was exactly how my mum and dad focused it on with me. And so 
there was such a responsibility. And it was like last year when I got nominated, and in a very jokey way, like our family rinse each other all the time. Like we constantly rinse each other. Like my dad read me the Times review down the phone when he got it, and they because he's got the paintball. Yeah, he's got the paintball. <laughs> but like the moment if I post up a, fa- a good review on the family chat, my siblings will immediately post one of the bad reviews just so. <laughs> but like I said, oh, I got nominated. And it was really nice to say that because I knew that would make my parents proud. But then my dad was like, well, you didn't win. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> you didn't win. <laughs> so get off your wings. <laughs> You've got to make something else. Um, is, there, is there an element, just, just trying to get a view of your relationship with your family, is there, is there like a grain of truth in that? Or is it entirely they love you so they're winding you up? Oh, they love me, but it's true. I mean, it's like it is, we are, we've got to do good. We, like we've been, I, I think it's why I'm okay with failure because I've done, I've failed it in so many different ways. But it's like the only thing I think about and put first in anything is my job. Um, so I'm trying to think of how to formulate this. So I wanted to be a comedian, so I did every unpaid internship I did. I did every job. I like. I constantly. I was very lucky that I was able to. Like when I got a job, I was working as a cocktail waitress in a cocktail bar. My dad was really angry. He said, "Why are you doing that? Because you're too exhausted and you're not able to focus on comedy." And I was like, "Well, I really need to show that I can do other things." He went, "No, just focus on what you're good at." Because dad had to do loads of different jobs before he was able to become the economist he is. He's like, "I didn't work hard so you could get tired and not do what you wanted to do." And then. And then I did all these different work jobs. I managed to do all the... I did drama at university. I was totally ingrained in it. My first solo show, first one, 40 minutes. Elf Lines is a pervert. That was straight stand-up. Did that at the Brighton Fringe. My dad saw it and he was like, that needs to be better. I was like, it does. And then I did Underground Success, which was sort of a one-up on that, and that was about the tube, and that was, again, straight stand-up. And I was sort of getting in touch with my nicheness and, like, my eccentricities, as it were. But it still, it wasn't good enough. And then I did being Barbarella, and then that got crowdfunded. Good enough, good enough for you or good enough for him? I think just good enough in general. I don't, I don't know, but my family were so involved in each other's life. I think... I don't know. I then, and then being Barbarella, I got crowdfunded to go to Australia, so I managed to fund that to get to Australia. And Australia, for me, was the game-changer because I was out there on my own. And I didn't have anyone watching me. I didn't have anyone on my back. And I also didn't have an agent. I didn't have anyone to... i just finished my master's. I was sort of... It was the first time I was kind of free to go, fuck it, I'll do what I want. And I got good at comedy, I feel like. Or I don't want to sound that in a boastful way, but I got as good as I could be at that point for me. And I really had fun. And I came back and then I did Edinburgh. And that was when I decided to do Gollier. I mean, I'm very lucky that I managed to... Obviously, I did lots of different jobs so I could financially afford to go to Gollier. But I think the crucial thing was I have, I've always had that family support to do comedy. I've never been... Yeah, they've... Like, occasionally, my mum's like, well, why don't you do something else? Because it makes you depressed. Why don't you become a teacher or do something else? And I go, well, risk versus reward. You know, the comedy's the only thing I could imagine... It's the only thing I... Like, a partner once said to me, he went, I didn't realise that you put comedy before anything else. Like, I was like, well, yeah, I do, because it's like, I've had it all the time. <laughs> it sounds really depressing. I don't know. Do, well, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to formulate what I mean. I mean, class definitely must be in there. Obviously. Like, I went to an all-girls boarding school where I never had the limitations of men telling me I couldn't do something. 
I always defined myself as a woman who was funny, who could do comedy. We were told we could do anything we wanted to do at my school. She said, she said it doesn't matter if you're bad at maths, but if you're good at drama, you do drama. I had a really fantastic headmistress. I had a really great education. I had some hor- like horrible things happen as well, but which I think... I mean... There was one cool thing. I'm not sure if this is interesting. I'm not sure if this is entirely related. But like, I feel like I'm a really sexual person on stage as a persona. And I've only recently really got that. Because I had a horrible experience when I was a teenager. And I remember when I had to deal with it, the doctor, the GP at the time, was just like, well, it was your fault you were asking for it. Da, 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 da. All that horrible, you know, unfortunate, lots of people do face. And I went to university, I think, dealing with that grief and that belief that it was my fault. And then I was performing this really sexually confident girl. I'm, God, I'm such a cool girl. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And actually, in someone I was very broken and very little and just wanted to be cuddled. And then I went to Gollier, and Philippe really picked up on that, I think. He said, you have this real desire to be loved. You really are desperate to be loved. But actually, we can't love you when you're desperate to be loved. You just need to come on stage and go... Fuck it, I love myself. You've got to be a bitch. And so one day I came on stage, and this was in Buffon, and I performed as this GP, this doctor, and I said verbatim what she'd said to me when I was 17, and I performed it as her. And he was like, that is Buffon, and that is fucking good. That is Buffon, that is good. And I felt really like... I was like, I own myself. And, I th- and that, from that, that led me on to when I went and did Swan and did... I'm totally in charge of my, my personality. I'm not sure... I, I, I don't know, it's really weird talking about it so much because you don't want to sound too wanky, do you? But I feel that's why only in recent years, especially through being a golly, I feel like a woman and a person. And it's why I take real pride in being a sexually confident creature on stage and playing with those gender identities of being very silly, very goofy, very innocent, and then very, like, womanly. Because I've been through, like a lot of people, been through the ringer of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I'm, I'm wrapped as they say. Um, absolutely. I think um, just to go into that, that, that thing, Buffon, I understand, to mm. mean a kind of dark clown, a sort mm. of sneering, I don't know yeah. quite how else to, to describe it, um, sort of a clown that laughs at misfortune. Well, it's not entirely... I mean, it depends on the way different people have been taught it, doesn't it, the same way people are being taught about clown, because Philippe would say Dr Brown... Phil is not a clown. He goes, yeah, Phil is not a clown. But mm. Phil is a clown, but he's a different type of clown to... Sure. You know, they're all different styles. But And Philippe would probably not think I was a clown because I'm sexual, and he doesn't like it when women are sexual for clowns. Which, again, okay. I disagree with. Yeah, um, <laughs> sure. But Buffon is, in traditional medieval times, if you were a heretic, if you were gay, if you were disabled, if you had Down syndrome or whatever, if you were a slut, if you'd been raped, if you were a, you know, a polluted woman... You were sent out to live in these swamps. You were kicked out of the town. You weren't allowed to be a part of the town. And there was one day of the year where you'd be allowed back into town to blaspheme against God. And you were allowed to put on a play, and that was called the Play of the Buffons. And the objective of the play is to perform it to the king, and the king goes... And you do an impression of the king, and the disabled man does an impression of the king, and the king goes, that's not a pressure me, and the guy's like, yes, I'm the king, and the king goes, that's not me, and the king goes, no, and the Buffon goes, no, I am the king, and the king laughs and then realises that that is who he is, and he dies. <laughs> um, it's 
you know, I suppose spitting image, you could say, is some sort of origination yeah, from Buffon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, caricatures. It's like you're doing bastards. Yeah. And Philippe, when we did it at school, he'd always say, a Buffon, you've got to pick a bastard. And the bastard is someone who would, someone who would ha- hand you over to the Gestapo. Yeah. That's a bastard. So it's not just someone who you didn't like. It's someone who's a real bastard. And that, yeah. And, and so when you had that, what sounds like a very key moment in your ownership of yourself, yeah. your comedy self and your actual, you know, your real yeah. self, what was it about that, performing that verbatim what the GP had said to you, what was it about that that allowed you to take ownership? I think it was that complete, I didn't have any shame in it and also... I was being a bitch. I went on stage and I en- and also I enjoyed playing her. So the monologue is: I came on dressed as the as dressed as this character, and I sat down. And I went. So I've spoken to the doctor, and I think it's best we keep this between ourselves. No point telling your mum and dad about this. Are you going to Bristol? Three A's, is it? Mm, clever girl. No use crying over spilled milk. At the end of the day, you were naked and in bed. It was your fault. Um, you were asking for it. Uh, Anyway, run over, you're a prefect, now you've got to take these things seriously. I hear you want to be a comedian. How brave. I hope you don't put me in one of your comedy routines. And that was how she ended it. And I came on stage and I sat there, really still, and I performed it. And I really enjoyed it. I fucking enjoyed saying it. Because it was like a real... Taking those words back and, and the audience, and also relishing in the reaction of the audience going, Oh, no shit really and I was like it was a sucker punch and I'm going yeah but you know what it's okay because I'm doing it and I think that's what it is and Philippe was like that was really good and I was really proud of that and yeah I mean if I'd come on stage and because also and and during Buffon we dealt a lot with sexual abuse and we dealt a lot with rape uh, in the course because a lot of girls did we all started coming forward and talking about these things and, and there were people who hadn't made peace with it and who were coming on stage and just suddenly bursting into tears. And Philippe would go, we can't do this. Because yeah. you've not... And Philippe, good, when I, when good. I, it's yeah. good to hear. I mean, this is obviously yeah, yeah. such sensitive yeah. stuff. Because Philippe, when I performed... There's a break on it. Because I performed it and Philippe really interrogated me in front of the whole school. He was like, when was this? And, I, and he wanted to make sure I wasn't going to film it. Because if I had started crying, he would have gone, no, this doesn't go in the show. Yeah. Because he's, he, you have to always be playful. You can't be sad. And it's really important when I do comedy for all the sadness that I've got. If you know, we all suffer with our own bits and pieces, whatever's going on. I go on stage and I'm so happy to be with that audience. Like, I have to, because it's the only time I get to really be happy. So, would you be able sometime in the future to revisit the themes of Pelican yeah. from a point of view of having made peace with it yeah. and find that? I don't know the yeah. terms of I never saw the show, I'm afraid, and I don't know the, you, the nature of your relationship with your mother. You've alluded, I think, to a couple of things about your family having quite... It's very Wes Anderson-esque. I think that's the simplest <laughs> way of describing it. It's yeah. really Wes okay. Anderson. Like, my mum and dad are just... Like, when we were little, it was... And it's funny, because I can't not make them be a part of my comedy, because my family are integral to everything. And I think it's also from having been separated with them, going to boarding school, sure. having that this very different bond. Um, 
and I'm so they're, they're so supportive and they give so much unconditional love but it's also a very powerful love that accidentally sometimes it's a bit like being cuddled by a vampire who doesn't realise how strong they are or you know like a really big dog and you're like oh you're a bit, you're a bit powerful oh, you're bruising me a bit that's a they're naturally I, I always have they always are there in my shows even when I, like, I on the way here I thought I'm not going to talk about my parents but they naturally are part of it because they're just so ingrained in creating the comedy and encouraging me and my sister and brother to do what we wanted to do like my mum and dad when we were little we'd all just sleep in the same bed we'd watch films throughout the night my mum would say don't go to school when I'd get my school report she'd throw it at the back of the car we wouldn't read it and at the same time, my mum is very emotional, a very artistic, she's an artist, and she's very emotional. And my dad's a very emotional person. You saw all these signs of them. And I always escorted my, when my dad's mates died, I'd always come with my dad to funerals, because I'm quite good with people and grief. And my dad would always wear sunglasses in churches. And I'd go, Dad, take your sunglasses off. You look like a member of the Bloody Blues Brothers. He'd be like, no, no, because this is one show it's the most. Like, all these really funny, silly little things, and... I don't know, just... I don't know what I'm talking about. Sorry, Stu, I've gone off on one. No, 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 this is good... I'm, I'm daydreaming, I'm it's dreaming. It's all good gear. It's all good stuff, because <laughs> I'm interested in... It does sound like you have a very unusual family background, and it sounds like... For me, I suppose, a confusing element of it is that you... Like, you throw the school report in the back of the car, that kind of mum, who nonetheless sent you to boarding school, which to me sounds like a very authoritarian thing to do. Well, I never the, went to we, one, so I don't we know say, The truth is, the reason I went to boarding school was I couldn't get into grammar schools. My mum and dad wanted me to go... Because they both went to grammar schools, and they both... They didn't... You know, they wanted me to go with everyone else, but I was dyslexic, I was dyspraxic, and I was weird. I didn't fit in. I read loads of books on my own. I used to spend weeks with my nanny Squeak and my granddad Squeak. I didn't go to school. I'd go and see plays at the Bob Hope Theatre. You know, I did one-woman productions of Beckett being stabbed in Canterbury Cathedral, and I, I did loads of, you know. And, and how much of a weirdo do you now feel? Do you feel like you fit into the world, or do you feel like you are a weirdo on your own terms? Or you know, do you you, you spoke before in the, in the bit that we've lost? about not feeling like you were a proper person. Yeah, I didn't feel like I was a proper person. What about now? Yeah, I'm a person. (laughs) But also, I'm lucky because I don't drink anymore. I'm sober. I'm doing a show I love. Well, I'm doing a show that I know I will love. I'm in a good... I've got really great friends in comedy, and I love comedy, and I love what I do. And all I've ever done is focus on doing what I love. And I'm very lucky to be doing that. If there are people listening to this, as I'm sure there will be, who identify as weirdos, who are yet to feel like themselves or yet to feel like they fit into the world, besides the advice of find the comedy circuit, meet a load of other weirdos, you know, because often that feels... I'm sure people listening to this might feel like that's the only way they can feel like themselves, is if they join the fucking circus, the cavalcade of of peculiar people. Without reference to comedy... What things could you say to someone, could you say to young Elf about how they might fit into the world or how they might feel more like a proper person? Just style it out. <laughs> Fuck them. My dad would always, always say, they're all a bunch of fucking wankers. And I, my dad did this thing and it was so sweet because I always remember, I never, I remember once when I was a child going out for dinner with my dad and going, Dad, I'd really like to get to know you. Which, in hindsight, is such a weird thing to say as a 10-year-old to your father, Ten. going, I would really like to get to know you. And my dad came in like a few years back and he just handed me this document 
And I opened the first page and it was said from like 1990, it's weird not to get emotional, it said from 1997, it was like, Dear Emily Ann, I'm on a plane flying to Singapore, I'm going to work, but I thought I'd like to write about some of the things you've achieved and show you that I'm very emotional, I'm very, very proud of you, even though I don't say it. And then there was one page which it was in it, and it was, and I remember this so well, these kids, and it was this play day. And I wanted to go and play with them, and they didn't want to play with me. And I remember, oh God, it's so funny to get so emotional about something so long ago. And I remember, like, the thing, they all turned and they ran the other way. And I was like, oh, oh, that's annoying. And I sort of went, oh, it's okay, I'll go on the Ferris wheel on my own. So I went straight, because I was sort of, you style it out. And my dad had written you, and I saw those girls turn and ignore you, and I knew how upset you were, but you were so brave, and I'm so proud of you, and they're all a bunch of fucking wankers. And he'd written that, and, and he handed that to me years later, and I was like, oh, like he did, he was, you know, they were very aware. I don't know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> but um, they're very, I mean, for as mental as they both are, they're like, I couldn't, they're integral to my comedy. And it's so funny, like, they ring me up. They'll be very critical. My dad came and saw Chiff Chaff and he fucking hated it. And he gave because, me... Because the he didn't, economics he, uh, is it important was, to him. Yeah, his economics was important to him and it was a very bad preview. It's Cambridge. Sure. I was very nervous. He was on the full throw. He was on his phone writing notes the whole way through the show. And, and he doesn't realise. He's a bit... He's on the spectrum. He's very much... He is... My dad's autistic. Um, very much so. And he, I don't think he realises it. That he... The way he communicates isn't how you should communicate with someone just after they've come off stage. And, um, <laughs> and I just told him, I was like, you're such a cunt. I was like, who the fuck are you? Don't talk to me. I was like, I was so angry, and we were on the train, and I was in tears, because he'd really upset me by... And he was like, the show will be good, but I've got all these notes. I was like, I don't want your notes, Daddy. It's not your show, it's my show. And then my mum went... She rang me and she went, why are you crying? And I was like, Daddy didn't like the show. And she went, put me on the phone to him. And I hear, you wanker, why the fuck are you making her cry? Oh, fucking idiot. Right, you're not sleeping in my bed tonight. You're sleeping in the spare room. And then Dad's like, well, just, I think it is a very good show. I just wanted to make sure I'm giving her... No, don't, she's a fuck. She knows what she's fucking doing. You sit here. Right, and goes back into my phone. And then she's like, right, don't be fucking mean to your father. He's just trying to do the best for you. You're just, and I'm like, well, fuck you, Mum. I just want to do my show. Right, well, don't talk to me then. And then I block her phone number and I don't talk to her for a week. And then she calls me and she goes, right, I hear you're doing very well. How's Edinburgh? And I go, I miss you, Mum. She goes, right, do you want a Hufflepuff jumper? Because I know you're in Hufflepuff. I'm like, I really want a Hufflepuff jumper. <laughs> I found it's insane. It's absolutely batshit insane. But it has to be a part of my comedy because of that. I think, I, I don't, basically, style it out. It's okay. Embrace your weirdness. Read. Read. Just read. That's all I do, I read. Get lost in books and see as many shows as you can. And also, even if you're not creative, do something creative, like do an improv class or just write. I think writing is integral. Writing diaries. It's a really good way of how I keep involved. I, I know when I'm depressed because I stop writing. And I go, why have I stopped writing? Oh, it's because I don't want to write about something. And then I realise... God, I feel like I've not talked about comedy, Stuart. I feel like I've just talked about feelings. You've talked loads about comedy. Oh, God. I'm such a wanker. I feel like people are going to listen to this and go, wow, she's such self-involved. I don't think so. (laughs) What do you want out of the next ten years of comedy? Um, I would love to keep on doing shows. I like making shows, theatre shows for the circuit. 
I'd like to, I think next year I would, I'd like to ban reviewers. I don't, I don't think I want, I just don't care about them anymore. I like audiences. I just, and I feel like I've done my bit. I feel like I've, I've received my ones and my twos and my fives and my fours. I feel like I've received all the constructive feedback I could get. I just want to, I don't want to be having, I don't want to receive school reports anymore. Um, oh, I've just thought The Ordeal would be a great name for your next show. <laughs> the Ordeal, yeah. I do know if I do another show, the next because I'm doing Medusa, which is the hour of Med- before Medusa's death, and that's a theatre show that I'm making with the Southampton Theatre, the Nuffield Theatre in Southampton. That's wow. a serious theatre show that oh, we're doing. Oh, wow. And that will be really fun, and I'm looking forward to doing that. But I know if I, the show I want to make after this... There are loads of ideas, but one I want to perform all my favourite horses from history. The other one is I want to I want to perform all of Stephen King's books in an hour. You, did you refer to that on stage? Yeah. Yes, because I immediately was like, oh god, yes, I want to see that. I want to do the, I want to do the whole of the show. I want to do the whole thing because I'm obsessed with Stephen King. Brilliant. Um, my mum's obsessed. My mum used to dress me and my sister up as the twins from The Shining when we were little and make us stand at the end of the corridors. Um, uh, I want to do that. And what was the other idea I had? Will, will, it, will it get harder to bite off more than you can chew the more used you get to attempting the impossible? Like, will it actually, like, when, you, when you think to yourself, I'm going to do all of Stephen King, like, I, can, I, I can't imagine what that would be, but, I mean, yeah, I think Elf can do that. Does that mean it's harder because now you are more capable, so there is less I think it, fear and, and adrenaline? But it always gets harder because with the more things that you do, the more opportunities that come, the more things you're aware of. Like, I never had the chance that I have now that people come up to me and go, hi, Elf, what lighting state do you want before you show? I never had that four years ago. And now I can go, oh, can you do a crossfading? Can I have a blackout? And do you have a haze machine? And with more of those, become more ideas, become more limitations, become more... Uh, the more opportunity, the more availability and knowledge you have of the industry, the more things get... It's always going to be complicated. Because next year, if I do The Raven, that's what the show, the horror show will be about, will be called The Raven, because I want to do Edgar Allan, you know, The Raven, Nevermore, Nevermore, um, and do horror-based. But I was thinking, how could you make it a scary show? Do a comedy show, immersive headphones or I don't know how to do it like do I have other actors in it how do you make a stand-up show that's a horror show that's scary at the same time as it's funny but it's like properly scary I don't know I just don't know and and just just a thought and um, because I'm interested that you're doing sort of if not straight serious theatre non-comedy theatre Medusa what are some of the how do you do that do you just make a comedy show that isn't funny like, what's the difference? What's the difference in how you make a show? Well, it's really Given the, the nature of the, you know, your approach to comedy is kind of games and limitations, mm. are there parallels, or is it a completely different thing? You it's, write a script and try and make it's drama. It's really a different thing, because with comedy, it's predominantly quite a loner sport. I mean, I worked with Itor from Spy Monkey for a week in April on this, because I really needed, I needed to play with someone. I needed to play with a grown-up. Um, and Spy Monkey, I, I absolutely adore. Yeah, well, I just think they're phenomenal. Um, and it was lovely to work with him. Uh, but with this show, there's a team of us. There's uh, Jess, there's Jasmine, there's Ian, there's, there's a whole gang of us who are making the music, the set, the tech, the lighting. We're, we're an ensemble, even though I'm the performer. It's not me going, right, this is Medusa, this is what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. We spent a week... We had a big R&D week in Southampton 
in May. Which is, again, it's why it's been difficult building this show. Because at the same time, the moment Edinburgh finishes, I go straight to Southampton for the intensive creation week of Medusa. And so we did loads of research around horror and about set building and lighting, and we've got live musician in it, and it's also, it's not for a comedy audience, it's for a theatre audience, so it means the laugh is slightly different, the reactions are different, 50 minutes. It's, it's a teamwork, and also I'm fulfilling my role with what everyone else wants me to be in it. I don't know how it's going to turn out. It's very exciting. Ian, who's the director, also went to Gollier, but before me. And so, again, we've come from a similar background. I don't, again, I have no idea. I like going into the unknown and just seeing what's going to happen. But it's okay, like, what's the worst that's going to happen with anything is that it's going to be shit. <laughs> I was like trying to explain that to my dad. I was like, look, the worst thing that's going to happen with this show is I get zero reviews, everybody hates it, nobody comes. I'll have to work loads next year to pay back the debt. But I'll just do a better one. Like, I'll be financially ruined, but I can get out of that. Like, I can work, and we can fix it, and I can be better. But nobody dies. Nobody dies from what we're doing. The only person who I need to emotionally worry about is me, mentally. And as long as I'm making sure I'm taking my fluoxetine, and I'm going swimming, and I don't drink, I'm going to get through this. (laughs) You know? And maybe that's the luxury that I've had of, again, the thing you were saying about class and upbringing. I've been going in so much unconditional love. Not without its bite. But my mum always said to me, when I've done gigs and it's been going really bad, like I had a horrible gig at the gong show once, and the audience shouted, we're going to rape you, and it was horrible. And I remember my mum went, baby, these gigs aren't worth it. They, this gig isn't worth it. Look, do you want me to ring them? And I'll say, you're too ill. I said, no, no, mum, it's not like... Who, who, who do I need to talk to? Who do I need to talk to to say you're too tired? You're too tired to do this. It's ridiculous. Right, I'm coming up. I'm picking you up and we're taking you home. Mum, no, no, no. Right, for God's sake, cancel the gig and get into bed, you idiot. Do you want to die? <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm sorry, I love you. Thanks, Elle. Thanks for having me. <laughs> So that was Elf. Thank you so much to her for coming along. Please get well soon, Elf, to the best of your ability, the best best of your situation. And um, please keep making incredibly interesting, challenging and very, very funny work. So you can find out all about Elf Lions by Googling Elf Lions and following all of the people are forever going, oh, where can I where can I find out about work? It's, there's an internet. Get on the internet. I can't do all the work for you. Um, but, uh, you know, she's on Twitter. She's on all the you know platforms and stuff. So if you're on them, search for her and you'll find her. So that's good. Thank you, Nathan, uh, for your editing and uploading skills. Thank you to uh, podcast consultant Pete Dobbing. Thanks to Rob Smouten for the music, as usual. And uh, also, there's no extra material from this one, because as you heard at the beginning, uh, we did a good 15 minutes before realising I hadn't turned on the equipment. Um, So uh, no extra stuff from this episode, but extras from almost every other episode, as well as an advanced copy of the interview with No Such Thing as a Fish, the QI Elves podcast. Uh, You can find all of that stuff on the private podcast, only for subscribing donors, insiders to this podcast. It's comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. You can find out how you can support this show. It genuinely makes a difference to me and my life and my family's life um, and uh, pays me a little something for all the effort that 
effort goes into these. If you have been enjoying this show for free and thinking, oh, maybe I should chuck something Stu's way, you can join for as little as whatever you want per month and, um, and you get access to this whole private podcast with loads of other projects, loads of extra material from episodes with Dara, James Acaster, Sarah Millican, loads and loads of stuff, and the uh, pre-release specials every once in a while, including the No Such Thing as a Fish live episode from the King's Place Podcast Festival in London. That's all of that, and um, I will now post Amber at you very briefly. But that concludes the show. I'll be back with you soon with more red-hot content. So there's a couple of things to talk about at the moment. One is the intense lack of sleep brought on by having a new child again and the sudden rush of, oh Christ, I remember, babies. I had to write two hour-long stand-up shows to get out of my system. Quite how hard I found the um, the first 18 months of the Boutros's life. And I, I have to admit to having had a sudden rush of, oh God, it's going to be really difficult, it's probably going to be harder. I immediately lost all respect for anyone who has only one child. Oh, yeah. Tell me about your problems. But, of course, um, uh, the, the boutress, as someone suggests, future, call, future girl be called, or, or indeed present girl. Um, she's wonderful. Uh, she makes me very happy. Life is brilliant. You know, I remember saying that I got... You remember, did I ever say this to you or in a show or something? Um, that um, life with a child is... Uh, meaningful but hard. You know, it used to be easy and meaningless. <laughs> oh, my life was easy. Oh, it was meaningless. And now it's meaningful and really difficult. And now it's extra meaningful and extra difficult. Um, also, it's just sleep, isn't it? It's so hard to stay positive when a toddler is throwing a tantrum and you've only had four hours sleep. So um, my wife manages it. I don't know. That's just one of those that's one of those deep down unfair mental health things whereby she is presented with a challenge and just digs deep and copes with it and deals incredibly fucking well with it. Um, and I crumble and go to pieces and turn out not to be the man I thought I was. Um, I'm not going to be too hard on myself because there's no advantage to doing that. But um, if there's any, uh, I don't know what, could we... Can we get like a male nanny? Is there such a thing as a sort of a dad nanny? Can I get, can I, can I switch my job? Sounding dangerously close to polyamory now, isn't it? But um, wouldn't it be good if there was a sort of a dad recovery service where a better man than I could step in and parent better and more calmly and uh, with more positive mental health than I sometimes can muster? Uh, in order to give my wife a break, because now is the time when I should be giving her all the support in the world. And I mean to, and I do my best, but all I'm saying now is I've remembered how hard it is and I've remembered how badly I fare when I don't get enough sleep. And that was always what I was scared about, having kids. I won't go into any further detail on that, but uh, shout out to any parents of two or more children out there. Holy fuck. But we're, we're great. Mother and baby, very well. I didn't chat about this much uh, last time, and I won't go into too much more detail now, but um, we're all great, and thank you so much for everyone that said either on email or on in the Facebook group or on Twitter or even Instagram, which I'm doing, at ComComPod these days, um, slightly more frequently than usual. Um, thank you, everyone, for all your wonderful messages. Um, I, I, I don't, I'm not going to put pictures of her anywhere besides the one that's already up there um, because uh, I don't feel that I have her consent to do that. And anyway, by the time she's six, the idea of having your face just out there in the world will surely be this preposterous thing that fogies are into. Like, do you know what I mean? Can you not imagine 
the the children of 20 or 30 years from now going, what, you just put your picture on the internet, you just gave away your image all over the place, out of what? Desperation, some sort of glee at the idea that someone in New Zealand could look at your face. Why would you do that? So I'm hedging my bets in the same way that I never got a tattoo because I remember writing band slogans, you know, movie quotes and band names on my pencil case and as a child and, and then getting annoyed with them and wanting to change it and having to buy a new pencil case. That's why I never got a tattoo. And that's why I'm not putting pictures of Future Girl online. No one asked, but that's why. Much cooler if I just didn't do it, wouldn't it? Ugh, I learn that now. Um, is, an, is a non-baby related thing. Spotify. I'm not going to advertise it. Some of you may be listening to this on Spotify. But I am... Look, oh, I said this was non-baby. It's completely wrapped up in the bootrust. I'm getting into so much new music now because whenever he listens to something, he goes, put this on my playlist. <laughs> and we've got this playlist online um, with something like 130 songs on it now, most of them by people I've never heard of. And I, I'm having this new... Like, I know your children are supposed to teach you stuff, but I didn't realise it started when they were two. Like, there's bands I like now that, that I have no idea... that I have no idea who they are. And I think as a, as a, as a younger man, my appreciation of music was sort of based on whether I believed in what the person was saying, enjoyed the melody, liked the sound of the voice, you know, all of those sort of things which... Uh, basically, I ended up being incredibly picky and choosy because if someone's voice was great but I didn't like their lyrics, then I'd be like, no, I can't, I can't get into them. So I only like six bands and I just buy everything that they've ever done. Um, and, uh, and now I feel like, no, if he's wiggling, it's a banger. And it goes on the list. What I realise, though, is that you can't play Radio 1 in the car... Not that I do that, I'm in my 40s. Um, but uh, you, the danger is, like, if he likes a thing, he's like, put it on the playlist. You go on Radio 1, it's all laser-guided at two-year-olds. It's all big, hooky, brassy stuff designed for kids to get addicted to. He's like, playlist, playlist, this one goes on the playlist. So suddenly our carefully cultivated, uh, you know, list of uh, really exciting music that I'm all excited about has got a load of stuff on it that I'm having to secretly delete while he's in bed, and then he realises I've done it and all turns into a saga. Um, but is, is, it, is it good? I feel like... I'm, my, one of my comedy albums is on Spotify. Hey, there's a plug. If I get another 11,000 plays, then who knows, maybe I'll make another $34, <laughs> which happened last year. It was funny. Um, but uh, So I, I benefit from it in a tiny way, and it's one of those things, I suppose, where you want visibility. But John Hopkins has released a new album, The Singularity, and it's fantastic. But I've heard it on Spotify. I don't know when I'm going to get the chance to buy a ticket to go and see him live. So he just, you know, I don't need to discover him there. I'm just like, oh, great. That's there. I'll have that. Now I'm listening to that. And he makes nothing. So I don't, you know. Hey, this is uh, this is like a, a very gentle observational comedy from five years ago. <laughs> but uh, it takes me that long to catch up often. That'll do me for now, I think. Um, there's other stuff. I'm in the cellar. Hey, here's a little note if you're... Uh, every so often people get in touch with me and say, Hey, Stu, I'm... <laughs> I'm going to be quite cruel now. People frequently get in touch with me and say, Hey, Stu, I've been so uh, motivated and inspired by The Comedian's Comedian that I'm going to start my own podcast doing exactly the same thing. Other people also get in touch saying, I'm going to do my own podcast, which is nothing like yours. And I, I, I suppose I appreciate them more. Um, but people often ask me what the sort of what the setup is. And I'm currently recording this um, leaning. This is a thing I saw. I, I didn't even get instructions for this. I just saw a picture of it. and I thought that'll work. I hope that you've noticed the sound quality of the blurbs today is slightly better because I am talking into my my phone, a one plus five, if you're interested. That's one plus in letters or one word and then numeral five. I mean... 
that wasn't they didn't think about that in advance today um so it's a one plus five which I, I like very much and um and I'm talking into a block of inch thick memory foam that I bought for a bit of camper van bed that never happened that I have stuffed into a cardboard box and I think in doing that I've taken echo out of the the place I'm sort of facing into the box <laughs> and I couldn't balance it at height so the whole time I've been talking to you I'm sort of standing like you know those awful Tory like I've got my legs one meter apart because it shows power I'm sort of doing that and bending down and talking to the box I hope you all get in touch to go god the sound quality is better in this episode um because it, this is painful but I do feel like I've sort of MacGyvered myself a studio so could you do me a favor get in touch info at comedianscomedian.com and just lie about the sound quality or uh, twitter or instagram at comcompod just get in touch and publicly go, whoa, wasn't the sound quality good? And then I'll feel like I'm not just <laughs> shouting into a box, shouting into a foam void. Ugh, there's an autobiography. Um, that'll do for now. Uh, I think normal service is going to be res- resumed from now on. I hope I can keep cranking these out with the the uh, content that I skillfully harvested during Edinburgh. So there's a few more of these to come. Who have we got? Imran Yusuf. We've got, um, it's brilliant, um, we've got the wonderful and bizarre Sean Morley, uh, Laura Lex, Laura Davis, both of those absolute belters, um, and I feel like there's three or four more as well. Jake Johansson, Jake Johansson, uh, who I managed to nab in maybe June this year when he was in London supporting Russell Peters on tour. He is a, oh, Jake's wonderful. So I, I, I he's from the Jake This podcast. He's a very, very funny, lovely, warm guy. He's almost like, um, he's a little bit like an American Will Anderson. Is that that helpful or is that more obtuse? Anyway, loads more great stuff going and I'm going to go now and do some more parenting. And that's all for now. I'll speak to you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 